If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. Luke is the third gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. This is chapter 21, starting in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is, that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led into captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is to come on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olive, 
And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thank you, Stephanie. Somebody get her some water. Uh, and that was a lot of reading, so thank you for doing that uh, this morning. Well, um, we come to an interesting passage of Scripture this morning, um, Luke chapter 21. And, and many of you probably weren't even alive uh, to remember this, uh, but in 1988, there was a guy by the name of Edgar Wisenot, I think I pronounced that properly, who wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. And so he listed 88 reasons within this book. There were 4.5 million copies of that book sold. And in that book, he, he lists 88 reasons for why Jesus is going to return in between September 11th and September 13th of 1988. And here's some of the reasons. We don't have time to go through all 88 of them. But here's some of the reasons for why he gave, for why Jesus was going to return between September 11th and September 13th of 1988. Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev had just signed a nuclear peace treaty in December of 1987. The 70th anniversary of the beginning of Soviet communism had just occurred. An American psychic, now wrap your mind around this, an American psychic had prophesied that a great world leader would be born in February of 1962, which would have made that individual 33 and a half years old in 1995, which would have been seven years after 1988, which was the year, supposedly, the year of the Antichrist. That's, so it's filled with all those sorts of reasons. It's also filled with all these references to Luke chapter 21, which is our passage of scripture this morning. And he uses all these references that, that Luke mentions here about wars and earthquakes and famines and false messiahs and persecutions and, and all those things. And he uses them to, as evidence that Jesus is going to return back and between September 11th and September 13th of 1988. Well, as you know, 1988 came and 1988 went, but Jesus never did. So you can still find this book on Amazon if you would like to read it, um, but I would, there's not much reason to read it. So I say all that. Like, it's easy, I think, to hear stories like this, about books written like this, kind of these date setters who are out there who have specific dates and times down to the hour and the second of when Jesus is going to return. And it's easy to hear stories like that and kind of chuckle, to kind of laugh, to kind of roll our eyes when it comes to date setters like this. But, but do you know what's even worse than than that, or, or do you even know what, what's just as bad as, as that, like kind of the Edgar Wisenot type people who are setting dates and, and all that? What's, what's worse than that is, is those who don't even pay any attention to Jesus' return at all. You see, see, we look at people on that extreme and, and roll our eyes and chuckle, and we're like, you said you don't know the day of the hour, so why, why in the world are they spending all this time trying to figure out the day and the hour? But what's just as bad 
is to be on this other extreme. And to be a Christian and to believe theologically in the second coming, but to functionally live our lives as if it doesn't exist. To functionally live our lives without any sense of urgency. As if we've got 60, 70, 80, 10 years, 15 more years, whatever, whatever it is. As if all that's just a given. And as if there's, there's yeah, this whole idea of just returning. I believe that, but I don't really live, live like that. Well, our passage this morning, Luke chapter 21, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to address both groups. He, he's going to address both extremes. And so to, to those on this extreme, the, the date setters out there, the ones who read the Bible on over here and a newspaper over here and, and just trying to figure out signs and are fixated on signs and trying to figure out the exact date and time in which Jesus is going to return. He, he got a word for you. And then for those people who are on the other extreme and who live their life like, yeah, I got, I got all the years in the world and just isn't going to return and, and just functionally live as, without any sense of urgency and all that. He got a word for you too. And so in, both of, in this chapter, he's got a word for both of these extremes and both these types of groups of people. And what he's desiring to do in that then is to call us then to a proper middle ground and a proper way to understand his return and understand how we are to be prepared and to be ready and how we're to live our lives now in light of the reality of his return whenever in the world that might be. And so that's what we're going to see here this morning. We're going to see how the reality of Jesus' return, the, the, the reality that, and the impact and the effect that, that that should have on our lives today and to shape and inform what it looks like for us to be ready and prepared for that as we live our lives today. So remember the context real quick before we jump into this passage. This is the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified this is, he's been in Jerusalem for three days. While he's been in Jerusalem, two things have happened. Number one, he's, he's pronounced condemnation and judgment against the people of Israel and against the Jewish religious leaders for rejecting him as the Messiah. Number two is that the Jewish religious leaders have gathered together and tried to figure out how, a way to destroy Jesus. And so it's in light of that context then, Jesus' condemnation of the people of Israel and the Jewish leaders their attempt to destroy him and discredit him as the Messiah. It's in light of that context then that Jesus utters these words here in Luke chapter 21. He's going to give the most vivid, clear, detailed description of the judgment that awaits the people of Israel for their rejection of him as the Messiah. And we see that starting there. Follow along with me. We see that starting there in verse 5. Luke writes this, And while some... And within the context here, the sum here is a reference to his disciples. We're speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He, talking about Jesus here, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the picture here is that the disciples are leaving the temple and they're just enamored with how big and massive and beautiful the temple is, and they're just, they're just awestruck by it. And it's within that context then that Jesus makes this prediction. 
You can see this prediction on your hand out there. He tells them that that big, massive, beautiful temple that they're all in awe of, that temple is going to be destroyed. And again, I can't even begin to express how shocking this would have been for the disciples to hear for two reasons. Number one, this is a monstrosity of a building. Like who in the world is strong enough and big enough and powerful enough going to come in and take that thing down? Like there's no way. But second, secondly, like, this was the place in which God's presence dwelled. Like this was the sign of God's favor's blessing upon people of, of Israel. It was the, the main identity of the people of the nation of Israel was wrapped around this temple. And so if God was going to, if it was going to come down, then that was going to be a sign of God's judgment and condemnation upon the people. And so they're like, they got all these questions. And so look at what they ask him there in, in verse Seven, they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So Jesus makes this prediction. The disciples have some questions. And their questions are twofold. Number one, they want to know, first of all, when will the temple be destroyed? So they want, this is a question about timing. When is this going to happen? Secondly, then they want to know what the sign's going to be that that's about to take place, that the temple's about to be destroyed. So when is it going to happen? What are the signs that are going to lead up to it? So when we see these signs, we, yeah, we can know how to get out of here. So then starting in verse 8, this is really important. Verse 8, all the way through verse 24, Jesus begins to answer those two questions that the disciples just asked. And this is, again, that's really important to catch. And the reason that's really important to catch is because it's easy to come to verses 8 through 24 and think that Jesus is answering a different question. It's easy to come to verses 8 through 24 and think the answer that Jesus, and, and think that the, the question that Jesus is answering is, teacher, when are you going to return? Teacher, what's going to be the signs that you're returning that's not the question that he's answering in verses 8 through 24. He's not answering the question about Jesus' second coming and when Jesus is going to return. He's specifically answering the questions the disciples just asked in verse 7. When is the temple in Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And what are the signs that are going to be preceded and surrounded before its destruction? And so Jesus then begins to answer that question, starting in verse 8 and extending all the way through verse 24. He begins to give these warning signs that are going to proceed and surround the destruction of the temple. So when the disciples see these things beginning to take place, they're going to know, oh, that big monstrosity of building that Jesus predicted was going to be destroyed, that thing's about to come down. And here are the signs then that they need to look for that, that, that signifies the temple's about to be destroyed. We're going to go through this super quick. See these on your hand out there. First, there, in verse 8, he says that there's going to be false messiahs. In verse 9, he says there's going to be rumors of wars. In verse 10, he says there will be wars between nations and kingdoms. In verse 11, he says there's going to be natural, natural disasters. In verses 12 through 19, he says there's going to be severe persecution. And then finally in verses 20 through 24, he says that there will be armies that are going to be surrounding Jerusalem. 
And so let's, let's read that together, starting there in verse 20 there. Jesus says this. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. So again, Jesus is giving the disciples advanced warning before, before the temple's destroyed. And he's saying, you need to be on the lookout for all these things. When you see false messiahs, when you see these, these natural disasters, when you see wars and rumors of wars. And, but most of all, when you see those armies surrounding Jerusalem, then you better hightail it out of there. Because it's not going to be much longer until that, that whole city is going to come crashing down. So, so flee to the mountains. Flee. Get, get out of there. Because when they see that, again, this is God's vengeance is the word that Jesus uses there. It's God's vengeance. It's not just, it's not just an army surrounding Jerusalem. Something deeply spiritual is happening. God is judging the people of Israel for rejecting the Messiah that he promised them and sent to them. That's what's happening when they see the army surrounding Jerusalem. In verse 24 then, he says this, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this is exactly what happened approximately 35 to 40 years after Jesus uttered these words. In 70 AD, the Roman army came, surrounded Jerusalem, set up siege walls around Jerusalem, and completely demolished and completely destroyed the city and completely demolished and completely destroyed the temple, just like Jesus had predicted. Over 1.1 million people died, and approximately 100,000 others were led off into slavery and led off into captivity. And not only that, but every single sign that Jesus predicted that would precede the temple's destruction, every single last one of them were fulfilled exactly as he said they would. Like we have historical accounts in my office at home. I mean, just read through them all this week. Historical accounts of false messiahs in that day. Historical accounts of wars. Historical accounts of natural disasters. Historical accounts of famines. Historical accounts, just read the book of Acts, of the disciples being persecuted, going before kings and governors, declaring and proclaiming gospel witness in that sort of context. All the events that he predicted that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple's destruction itself. All of it happened exactly the way that Jesus predicted. It was all fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. That doesn't mean then that there's no more wars today. That doesn't mean then there's no more false messiahs today. That doesn't mean then there's no more natural disasters today. There's all of that stuff still today. But what it means is what Jesus was predicting here 
surrounded and preceded what was going to, the signs that were going to take place before the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's those predictions that Jesus made that were fulfilled exactly as he had promised. There's one thing, though, that is still yet to be fulfilled that he mentions here. And we see that in the very middle of verse 24. Look there with me. Jesus says this, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And then he gives a timeline, kind of a duration for how long Jerusalem is going to be under the rule and under the foot and under the control of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what in the world does that mean? Jerusalem is going to be under the reign, under the control, under the foot of Gentiles. And he gives us a timeline here. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What on earth does that mean? What are the times of the Gentiles? And, and in what way does that need to be fulfilled? Well, Jesus doesn't unpack and explain what all that means for us here. But thankfully, Paul does. And he specifically explains that in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what Paul says there. He says this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, when we think about God's, the redemptive, God's, plan of, in redemptive history, the very beginning, he, he enters into this covenant relationship with Israel, but they reject him, they reject the Messiah that he sends to them. As a result then, he condemns Israel, he pronounces judgment upon Israel that's most clearly, vividly seen in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And then what does he do? Then he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's, that's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 24. He's saying that, you can see it on your hand out there, that Jerusalem will remain under the control of the Gentiles until the complete number of Gentiles come to saving faith in Christ. In other words, whenever this is going to happen, like once that last Gentile, the fullness of the Gentiles come in, so once that last Gentile, whoever that person might be, wherever that person is, whenever that person's going to come to saving faith in Christ, but whenever that person comes to saving, in, saving faith in Christ, then at that point in time, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. And at that point in time, then Jerusalem won't be under the rule and reign and control of the Gentiles anymore. Instead, guess who Jerusalem is going to be under the rule and control over under them? Jesus. And, and that's, that's the whole point of where he goes next in verse 25 there. After the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, after, after the times of the Gentiles have been, been fulfilled, then, then look what, happened, let's look what happens, is going to happen next in verse 25 there. Jesus says, And there 
will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In other words, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then there's going to be this great cosmic upheaval. And Jesus is going to return back to this earth in great power and great glory. And when he does that then, those who haven't bowed their knee to Jesus as their king and submitted to him as their Lord, Jesus says they're going to be fainting all over the place in fear because Jesus is returning in power and glory and they're going to be judged while those who have received him as king will enter into his kingdom forever. And so then put all this together real quick. This is the closest thing that Jesus gives to us when it comes to a timeline of his return. Closest thing in all of the Bible that Jesus gives us when it comes to a timeline for his return. There are three main events. You can think of these main events as dominoes. One domino has to fall, the other domino has to fall, and then once those two fall, then the third domino is going to fall. So first domino, first event, is there's going to be all these warning signs that lead up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that demonstrates God's judgment of the people of Israel for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. That happened in 70 AD. Check. First domino fell. Second domino then is that the Gentiles are going to be in control of Jerusalem rule over Jerusalem until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So that's where we are. It's where we are now. Have no idea how much longer we're going to be there, but that's where we are now. Third then domino or third event, you see this on that next bullet point on your handout there, is that once the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then Jesus will return back to usher in God's kingdom and judge those who have rejected him as king. So in, in, light, of, in light of that then, so those, those are the three events, the three dominoes. In light of the, those three dominoes, those three events, this, this timeline that Jesus gives here, look what he tells his disciples there then in verse 28. He says, now when these things begin to take place, meaning when this timeline begins to take place. When, this, when the first domino falls, when, when that happens, so when you see false messiahs and earthquakes and wars and armies surrounding Jerusalem, when all that begins to happen, then here's how you're supposed to respond. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Meaning, Jesus' return is near. And, and the reason his disciples know that it's near is because once they see that first domino fall, then they know there's only one more domino that needs to fall before he returns. All, all that's left is for the times of the Gentiles to be filled, the, the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And they have no earthly idea when that's going to happen and, and who that's going to be. And, and that could happen any moment. Because of that then, when they see that first domino fall, that first event fall, then they know there's only one more domino that needs to fall before Jesus returns. And so, in their mind, like, it's near. This is the imminent. 
this is really close. It could happen at any time. So just like you better straighten up and raise your head because it's near. Verse 29, then he, he gives this parable that illustrates this point he just made there in verse 28. Look there with me. He says, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Same, same point. There's, there's only three dominoes in the timeline. The first domino goes down when they see all the warning signs and the destruction of the temple. When they see that, they can know that Jesus' return is near because there's only one more domino that needs to fall. The times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. That's the only domino that still needs to fall before Jesus returns. His return is imminent. His return is, is near. Verse 32, then he says, truly I say to you, this generation, he's talking about the generation that he's talking to at the time, the generation of the disciples at that point in time will not pass away until all has taken place. Talking about the events surrounding the destruction of the temple and the temple being destroyed that he's been talking about. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So again, what Jesus is trying to get out in verses 28 through 33 here is to remind us what these three events signify, what these three dominoes signify. That once the temple, you see this on your hand out there, that once the temple is destroyed, Jesus' return is very near. All that's left at that point in time is for the times of the Gentiles to be fulfilled. So, it's a nice history lesson, right? It's a lot in all of that. And at that point in time, some of you, I know there's objections. Like, I know that. Like, but Jerusalem, I, I thought Gentiles weren't ruling over Jerusalem and all that stuff. We're talking about the Temple Mount at this point in time and the Dome of the Rock that's there now and, and all that picture. And I know other questions that are out there and all that stuff. And we can talk about those at some time. But what I want us to do now is, is this. I want us to personalize this for a moment. And think about what in the world is all of this that Jesus just said, what, what is its relevance for our lives today? Meaning this, if this is true, if all that's left is the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled and the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, if that's all that's left before Jesus returns, and not just that, if we're 2,000 years into that, <laughs> And that's all that's left before Jesus returns. And we have no idea when that's going to happen. And if that could literally happen like in the next three seconds. If that's true, then what effect should that have on our lives? How should that shape and inform how we live our lives? What impact should that have on your work tomorrow and your life on Wednesday and, and all those things. What, 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 what should be the impact on our lives? Well, that's what Jesus gives us and explains to us in the verses that follow, starting in verse 34. What Jesus does in verse 34, really through verse 36, is he explains how we ought to respond and how we ought to live in light of the fact that his return is near and his return is imminent. And look what he says there in verse 34. He says this, But watch yourselves, 
lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, talking about the day that Jesus returns in judgment, come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So if it's true that Jesus' return is imminent, then he says that we ought to respond in three ways. And the first response is this, see it on your hand out there, that we must guard our hearts from being consumed with the pleasures of this world. We must guard our hearts from being consumed with the pleasures of this world. Look at verse 34 again. This is exactly what Jesus is warning against there in verse 34. He says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Then he says, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He specifically mentions these these two sins here of dissipation and and drunkenness here. But we could broaden that a little bit just to refer to any sinful pleasures, sinful lust, sinful desires in this world. In other words, we, we can become so engrossed in we can be so, so enthralled by just the, just the sinful passions and the lust of the, the world in which we live that that becomes our focus, that, that we lose sight of, we begin to lose focus of Jesus' return. Instead, all we really care about is, is feeding the lust in our own hearts, feeding the, feeding the sinful desires in our own hearts. It's like this fleshly monster that we have that isn't satisfied and that just wants more and more and more and more. And we just keep trying to feed it and feed it and feed it and feed it with the sinful pleasures and lust and desires that this world has to offer. And in, in doing that, it just we lose focus. We, we, don't, we don't long for his kingdom anymore. We don't long for Jesus to return anymore. All we long for is to satisfy the cravings and the desires of our sinful hearts. And that, that's what sin will do, right? begin to be entrapped in sin, begin to be just indulging in sin, then what begins to happen? Your longing, your desires, your anticipation of Christ, His kingdom, things that are eternal, His return, all of that becomes, begins to be quenched. And all you care about is is satisfying that fleshly monster and the desires of your flesh with all the desires and all the cravings that this world has to offer. So think about that in your own life right now, right? Is there there a sin issue? Something that you just are entrapped, enslaved by? Something that you can't, you just keep going back to? Like you're in it for two weeks and plunging headlong in it and then, you stop for about three weeks, and then you're going back for a couple more weeks, and then you stop for a while, then you go back for, and whatever that might be. If that's you, that's, that's, that's hindering. You're, you're not ready for Jesus to return. You're not prepared for Jesus' return. The reality is you don't even want him to return. You just want more of that, more of that, whatever it is, just feeding yourself, feeding yourself with more and more and more of that. And so my encouragement to you this morning would, would be confess that to the Lord, but secondly, confess that to somebody else here. 
and allowing them to come into that sin struggle, to walk alongside of you, to fight alongside of you, to wage war and to battle against those things, whatever that might be, and, and begin to take some steps to break free from whatever that might be in your own life. Secondly then, the way we should respond to the fact that Jesus' return is imminent is that we must guard our hearts from being distracted by the worries of this world. We must guard our hearts from being distracted by the worries of this world. That's what Jesus says next. Look at the middle of verse 34 there. Well, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And then he says this, and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. We've talked about this before, but when he talks about the cares of this life, he's not talking about anything that's sinful. He's not talking about anything that's bad. He's not talking about anything that's wrong. He's just talking about like the ordinary. He's talking about everything on your to-do list. Just the ordinary cares, the ordinary responsibilities of your life. So just think about what those are. Your job, laundry, parenting, doing dishes, mowing your yard, raking leaves, raking up acorns, um, you know, all those things. Uh, that's an inside joke. Uh, your budget, your finances, getting little Johnny to soccer practice and little Susie to ballet. I mean, just, you know, and just, just all, the, all the time demands and responsibilities that you have. None of those things are sinful. None of those things are inherently bad and evil and wrong in and of themselves. I'd say most of those are, are necessary. But what Jesus is warning against is getting so focused on those things, so busy with those things, that we just have our head to the grind and just, just going and going and going from one thing to the next to one thing to the next, one thing to the next, one thing to the next. And the last thing we're thinking about is Jesus returning. Last thing we're thinking about are things of eternity. The last thing we're thinking about are things of his kingdom. We're just so busy running around like a chicken with its cat cut off, just trying to survive life. And so the question, like, is what do we do then? Right? Like it's not like you can just stop doing laundry, or you shouldn't. It's not like you can just stop, like, just abandon your kids. Just don't take care of them, just chunk parenting and focus on Jesus. Like, don't do that either. Uh, okay, forget the budget. I'm not going to spend any more time cramming numbers trying to figure out what. No, like, you still got these responsibilities. So how do we fulfill these responsibilities and the cares of this life while at the same time being ready and prepared for the imminent return of Jesus? How do you do both of those things? Well, there's a lot of reason, a lot of answers I think that could be given. Well, let me give you like the basic number one answer. And the basic number one answer would be this: is to get up early every single morning and spend time in God's Word. You're like, no, but I want a real answer. Like, ah, no, that's a real answer. Get up early every morning and spend time in God's Word. However early that needs to be. And that doesn't need to be three hours, you know, four hours, five hours, but whatever, whatever time that needs to be, where you're reading the Word, you're, you're beholding the glory of God, the 
character of who he is. Every morning you're beholding the beauty of Jesus. And those are just like, like just fanning the flame in your heart for Christ and his return. And as you're beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus every morning through, through his word, then your, your heart is changing over time. And your heart posture is changing in regards to how you're fulfilling all those daily responsibilities. You're still doing all those daily responsibilities, but you're doing them with a heart attitude and a heart posture and a mind that is, that is focused on the things of eternity at the same time. We can be so busy fulfilling all those responsibilities that the day of the Lord comes upon us like a trap and we're not even ready for it. One of the ways to combat that is get up early and spend time in God's Word every day. Third response then would be this. We must pray to the Lord for strength to endure. We must pray to the Lord for strength to endure. This is what Jesus says next there in verse 36. Look there with me. He says, but stay awake at all times. He's using figurative language there, talking about being ready, being, being, being on the alert for Jesus, for his return, for, for the day in which he returns back to this earth. Which then begs the question, how do we do that? How do we stay awake? How do we, how do we maintain the sense of readiness? Well, he tells us, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So remember the context, right? He's talking to his disciples here, and he's saying, in order to be ready and prepared for the Lord's return, then you need to pray that God would give you strength to escape, to endure all, the, all these things that are about to take place. So what are those things that are about to take place? False messiahs that are going to try and deceive them. Wars and rumors of war that are going to scare the weebie-jeebies out of them. Persecution, betrayal, death. Watching Jerusalem is completely destroyed. High telling it to the mountains because you're scared for your life. Like those things, like the disciples in and of themselves, they're weak. They're not going to have the strength to endure and persevere, to maintain faith in Jesus, to continue to follow him and walk with him with courage and obedience, to not waver and not to wane, not to be loved sleep. The only way they're going to have strength to be able to endure everything he said in chapter 21, specifically verses 8 through 24 that is about to come their way, the only way they're going to be able to get through this is that they pray and plead to the Lord to strengthen them and to give them the courage and the strength to be able to endure all this mess they're about to walk through. And the same is true for every single one of us. Uh, I have no idea what's in store for your life, in your life, for your life the next week, the next year, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 50 years, for some of you, probably the next 80 years. I won't be around then, but the next 80 years for some of y'all. You have no idea what you're in store for, what these things are going to be for you. And I'm not trying to scare anybody or put anybody on high alert, but for most of us, we're going to walk through stuff, hard stuff. Like life is difficult whether that's physical pain and suffering, whether that's just emotional trauma and turmoil inside of you, whether that's spiritual temptation that you never in your wildest dreams thought you would buy into and give into, 
whether that's relational conflict with people that you dearly love, whether that's financial difficulties and struggles that you never in your wildest dreams thought you'd be, you thought you'd be in, whether that's just affliction and suffering of any other sort. And the reality is you're weak in and of yourself. I'm weak in and of myself. And we don't stand a chance surviving and making it and enduring until the end, either when we die or that Jesus returns, ready and prepared for his return with our faith still intact, with our eyes wide open, ready, longing in anticipation for his return. We don't stand a chance unless God, by his supernatural power, gives us strength and courage to stand firm and to persevere and to endure all the mess and heartache and pain and difficulty and struggle that we're going to walk through until we die or until Jesus returns. We don't stand a chance or have a hope. And if that's true then, then what should we be doing in our lives? We should be praying. Like not just praying without ceasing type of prayers, like just flare prayers all throughout the day. Yes, amen to all that. At the same time, if this is what's in store for us, and if we want to have strength to be ready for that day, then doesn't it make sense that you start your day on your knees and on your face just admitting how weak and vulnerable and helpless and needy you are to have any chance to endure the rest of your life with your face still intact, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, waiting for Jesus, much less making it through the next 10 minutes. And if you really believe that, and if you really believe you're that vulnerable and needy and weak, then the first thing we're going to do after we read this word so we're going to fall on our faces and we're going to pray, God, give me strength to endure this. Give me, give me strength to endure these specific temptations and sinful uh, temptations in, in, my, in my life. Lord, give me, give me strength to endure just this relational conflict I'm walking. Give me strength to endure this physical pain. Stuff. Give me strength to endure. Help me to endure. Help me to persevere. Help me to continue to follow and, and walk with you through it all. So two questions when it comes to that, like, Number one would be, would be this. Do you, do you have time each day set aside for focused prayer? Again, not, not just I'm all for praying without ceasing and, and all that throughout the day, but I'm talking about literally like, this, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to get on my knees for the Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for strength. I'm going to pray for endurance. I'm going to pray for courage. I'm going to pray for perseverance in this area of my life, in this area of my life, in this area of my life. And is, is that true in your life? Is that a rhythm? Is that a pattern? If not, do it. Please do it. Secondly, then, this is more corporate. question would be this. Will you commit to coming to our corporate church-wide prayer gatherings as a church regularly? I mean, don't just make it optional where, but I'm, I'm going to schedule this in the calendar. Like, 
This, this is going to be a priority. It's just an hour and a half once a month. And so I'm going to, I'm going to block it out. And Yeah, there, there might be an exception here, there. I get, I get all that. But, but would you commit to that? Just commit to coming to these corporate church-wide prayer gatherings once a month. Sunday, once a month from 4 to 5.30. Because here's what happens during that time. People get up here and share. And most of the time when they're sharing, they're sharing about how they need strength to endure. They're, 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 they've got some sin issue that they want to confess to the church and they want to ask our church to pray for them. And they're, they're walking through physical pain. They're walking through physical suffering and they're at their wits end. They don't know if they can continue to persevere and endure and they need help and they need their church family to pray for them. And they're wrestling with a major decision. They don't know what to do, this, that, whatever else. And they, they're just at a loss and they need help. They need strength to endure. They need... They need help. They need their church family to come alongside of them to pray. We have missionaries every time getting up here. They're about to go to some really, really hard, difficult places that are going to eat them alive within their own strength. And they're coming up here, and they're asking, hey, can you pray for me? I'm going to the Middle East. I'm going to North Africa. I'm going here. I'm going this. And, and I don't want to go alone. I, I need strength. I'm scared out of my mind. I don't, I don't know. I can't question whether I can do this. Can you pray for me? Strength to endure and, and all these things. So will you commit just personally, individually, just focus time in prayer, just individually, every day. When is that going to be? What's that going to look like? And then secondly, will you commit to coming to our church-wide corporate prayer gatherings together? So then we're 2,000 years into the second domino. And we have no earthly idea. There's only three of them. And the third one, the third one comes, it's game, set, match. He's here. 2,000 years into the second one. Have no earthly idea how much longer we have. But all that's needed to take place is for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. You don't know, I don't know, if that's 100 more, if that's 1,000 more, that's 100,000 more, that's a million more, if that's one more. Have no earthly idea. But when that last Gentile comes in, then the sun and the moon and the stars are going to darken. Whole earth is going to begin to shake. Whole cosmos is going to turn into some big cosmic upheaval. Which I have no idea what in the world any of that means or what that's going to look like. And out of nowhere, the Son of Man is going to return in all of his power and all of his glory to reign and rule over this new heavens and this new earth, this new Jerusalem. And when he does, then we need to make sure we're ready. And the way that we make sure we're ready is by not, be, not indulging in the sinful pleasures of this world, by not being distracted by the ordinary cares and responsibilities of this life, but by praying for strength to endure. I pray that, that would be true of my life, and I pray that that would be true of your life as well. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are ready, to live lives that are prepared. Lord, within this passage, you teach us, you show us what it means to wait and what it looks like to wait for Jesus. That waiting for you does not involve charts, 
that waiting for you to not involve reading newspapers or the local news and trying to pinpoint when all of these things are happening and how they're all happening and all of those things. But waiting for you involves having a prepared heart. And that prepared heart is found in not indulging in the sinful pleasures of this world. So, Lord, help us to flee from sin. Help us to repent from sin. Help us to fight sin and to battle against sin so that our eyes and our heartbeat would not long for the sinful pleasures of this world, but our eyes and heartbeat would long for you and your return. Lord, I pray that in all the different ways in which the responsibilities of this life consume our thoughts, consume our minds, consume our affections, consume our time and, and all these ways, for most of us, we can't, we can't get rid of most of these responsibilities. So I pray that in the midst of those responsibilities, you would help us to attune our hearts um, just to the glory and the beauty of Christ and who you are. You would cause us to long for your return and to have hearts that are focused upon you in the midst of fulfilling these responsibilities. And most and probably more importantly, help us to pray. Help us to fall on our faces before you and plead for help, to plead for strength. Help us to do that individually and corporately. And as we do that, pray that you would cause our hearts and shape our hearts to be hearts that, that long for the day in which the Son of Man returns on a cloud in great glory and power to this new Jerusalem, to this new heavens, this new earth, in which we'll dwell and reign and rule with him forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? And as you do, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. We, we talk about this a lot. Obviously, we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. But there's really two ways to look at the Lord's Supper, two biblical ways to look at the Lord's Supper. One is that as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we look back in remembrance upon what Jesus has done. That the broken bread, the, the, the cup that we're going to partake of, is symbolic of Jesus' body, his blood, that was spilt for us on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus substituted himself in our place to take the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. That through faith and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross, we can be reconciled with him forever. So we look back, right, in, in remembrance and celebration for what Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross. But we also look ahead in anticipation that the Lord's Supper is a picture of the fellowship and the feasting that we're going to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And that's what we remember this morning, that as we talk about being ready, being prepared for Jesus' return, one of the ways that we stay awake and one of the ways in which we keep ready for his return is by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. That as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's just a small picture of this greater feast that we're going to have when Christ returns. So you eat that bread, you, you drink that cup, and causing your heart to, to not just think about the past, but to look ahead and to cause you to be more prepared and ready and even long for the day in which he returns. So let the Lord's Supper do that for you as you partake of it this morning.